My name is Jill. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. Look, I am creating a new heaven and a new earth. Past events won't be remembered. They won't come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating, because I'm creating Jerusalem as a joy and her people as a source of gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad about my people. No one will ever hear the sound of weeping or crying in it again. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation 22, 20 through 21. The one who bears witness to these things says, Yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. The word of the Lord. And if you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John 14, 18 through 20. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace present among us by your Holy Spirit. We ask now that as we listen to your scriptures read and taught, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to hear your voice. You would awaken us, Lord. Let your word be sharper than any two-edged sword. Let it breathe your life into us, we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening, everybody. Good to see all of you in the room tonight. Thank you for being here. And all of you that are joining us online, hello, hello, hello. On YouTube or Facebook, you could send up those hearts and thumbs or whatever it is uh, that, that floats your fancy. Or drop a comment and say hello. Let us know you're joining us tonight. Listen, I just want to say, New Life Downtown, I am so grateful for the way you have adapted and adjusted and persisted in this season. This is not easy. I know this is not normal. I know we all wish we could be a gathering and worshiping in different ways. Some of you I know don't want to be a watching from a screen. You're probably tired of doing that. Those of you in the room, you're, you're, you're wishing we could be back in a more familiar place. And I just want to say how grateful I am for all of you that are making the, these turns with us. The, obviously, this is, what's the word for the season? An un unprecedented come on guys it's like the most overused word of 2020 unprecedented except for a hundred years ago when it did happen um so thank you for adapting and adjusting to all of this. And you know, there is some good news here. In a couple of weeks, we will be, Lord willing, meeting downtown once again on a Sunday morning. Yes, 
We announced this a few Sundays ago. Uh, we will be at the Antlers Hotel in the, uh, the Grand Ballrooms there on Sunday mornings beginning in December, December 6th. We'll have a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m. It's going to be a wonderful time. And there's details to follow about how to make sure you get a seat there and how all of that works, kids ministry and all of that. But I'm grateful for the chance to come back to uh, downtown and to be there on Sunday mornings. I, I tell you, if there's one thing this season has taught us, it's that we're not very good at waiting for an uncertain future. In fact, it's, it's hard enough to wait for something that you know, at least when you know what you're waiting for. You know like the people, maybe not to name names, Jim and Martha Cole, who waited seven hours for In-N-Out on Friday. They posted it on Instagram and Facebook so we could say it. Or Janelle, who waited five hours in line. Anyone in the room wait for In-N-Out on Friday? Anyone here? No? Okay. Yeah, I didn't either. I love In-N-Out. I'm super excited about this, but I, I don't really want to wait uh, those hours. In fact, I'd rather wait weeks rather than in my car. So it's hard enough to wait for something when you know what it is you're waiting for. But it's more difficult to wait if you think the future is uncertain. Tonight we've come to the end of our series in the book of Revelation, and once again you've made it now to a finish line, you've come to the end of this, you've persisted. If, the, if one of the main themes in the book is about patient endurance, you have patiently endured to the end of this book. And we're going to look at Revelation 21 and 22 and explore what the book has to say to us about the end of it all, the, the, the last word on the future. That's what we're looking at tonight, the last word on the future. I saw a friend of mine posted a picture on Instagram of a palm reader, kind of kiosk that this palm reader had, and it said closed due to COVID. And my friend cheekily commented and posted a picture of it and said closed due to unforeseen circumstances. We don't really know exactly what's coming next month, next year. We have no reason to sort of expect that 2021 will be better than 2020. But what the book of Revelation does is it lifts up our heads and says, but we do know the grand ending of it all. We do know the ultimate hope. We do know the ultimate end of the story. And so it gives us this macro level view of the future. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 5. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. You understand that so much of the story of Scripture is human beings' choices that isolate and separate us from God and God's pursuit and sacrifice that makes his home with us. And here it is at the very end of it. It says he will dwell with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more and there will be no mourning, crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. 
Tonight, as we look in Revelation 21 and 22, I want us to see three things that Jesus will do, that Jesus will bring about at the end of all things. And the first is this, Jesus will make all things new. Jesus will make all things new. Now, it's very important that we pay attention to the wording of the scripture here, where the voice from heaven says, behold, I'm making all things new. Does not mean I am making all new things. I think sometimes, particularly in American evangelicalism, we sort of have this impression that God really doesn't like this world, and God doesn't really like material things or physical things, and God can't wait to give us spiritual things. And so what we imagine is that the end of the story is that God says, ugh, done with that, into the trash it goes. And look over here, there's some gold dust, and there's some fairy wings, and there's some harps for you. And we imagine that God is just going to make all new things, but that's not the picture that we get at the end. What we see at the end of the story is that Jesus makes all things new. He takes what was broken and stained and tainted and destroyed by sin and somehow redeems it. We have to remember here that the creator, the God who began the story is the God who ends the story. The God of Genesis is the God of Revelation. The God we see in Genesis 1 and 2 who creates the heavens and the earth and steps back and says, this is good. It's that God who at the end of it says, and now I will bring it through and make it new again. Revelation 22, the next chapter, verses 1 through 3, you see a series of reversals that kind of happen here. Then the angel showed me the river of life, giving water, shining like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the city's main street. And on each side of the river is the tree of life. Here again is Genesis language, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. And the tree's leaves are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. Pause right there. Genesis 1 and 2, the beauty of the creation story is followed quickly by the story of human sin and the resulting curse that begins to infect the world. Now here in the very last chapter of the Bible, we see God saying, and there's no more curse. In fact, not only is there no curse, but there's healing This tree of life is the culmination of what the tree of life in Eden was meant to be. Now, this tree actually is not just for two people to eat from, but it will give leaves and fruit that result in the healing of all the nations. You see, what's happening here is the great undoing of the curse. And then the second half of verse 3, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Maybe you've been listening in the series and particularly in those early chapters where we had these visions of the throne and you're like, wow, that sounds amazing. Where is that? As if we're sort of like, you know, trying to find Oz or something. Where is that wonderful throne with rainbows? And John says, you know where it's going to be? Right here. In your midst. God himself comes to dwell here. And then he says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will shine on them. These are more reversals. Eden, the the paradise and the beauty of Eden ends with this exile where they're kicked out of it. 
And if you track the story of the Old Testament, so much of it is the people of God entering a promised land and then being driven from a promised land, wondering when they can return home, exile and homecoming, exile and homecoming. And we expect that maybe the end of the story is we will exit this earth and return home, quote unquote, to heaven. That's not it at all, isn't it? There's a little Jesus juke in here where God says, no, 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 no. The homecoming is that God comes to make his home with you. God comes to make his home here. And you say, wait a minute, we were the ones exiled from God. Yeah, I know, but that's the kind of God he is. He comes chasing after and makes his home here. Comes and sets up his dwelling place here. And so instead of absence and distance, there's presence and nearness. Instead of darkness, there is light. I find this picture so beautiful. No more will they need the light of a lamp or the lamp of the sun. For the Lord God, it says, will shine on them. You know, often we pray that priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. It's a Hebrew expression that has to do with God's delight in you. What will it be like when God's delight in you is so bright that you don't even need a sun? What will it be like when the Father's joy over you is so radiant that there's not even night anymore. Could you imagine the beauty of that, the comfort of that? Jesus is making all things new. And then the second part, the last part of it, it says that they will rule forever and always. That they will rule forever and always. Here once again is the restoration of what Genesis 1 said. It said human beings were created, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says let's make them in our image so that they can rule. Did we forget that the whole reason we were made was to participate in God's kingdom? And the end of all things here on Christ the King Sunday is not that he does it all and then we just sort of are passive and say, that was pretty cool, man. Popcorn, please. The end of all things is when Jesus says, now come rule with me, just as I planned at the very beginning. See, you thought you could derail the story, but God puts it back on track. That's what we see. Jesus is going to make all things new. Second thing we see at the end of the story here is that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. In fact, the book of Revelation opens with this statement. Revelation 1, verse 7, look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. How's that? And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And this is so, amen. In Revelation 1, the coming of Jesus is sober. It's a warning to say he's really coming, and there will be vindication, like we talked about a few weeks ago. But by the time you get to Revelation 22, now we know evil has been dealt with. The great beast and the serpent and the harlot and all of the pictures of evil that John could come up with from drawing from Old Testament imagery. All of the pictures of a beastly empire have now been dealt with. Evil has been dealt with. And now we hear again this phrase, I'm coming. Except now it takes on a hopeful tone. And it takes on a more urgent tone. In the ancient world, when they were writing stuff down, if they wanted to emphasize something, you know, they didn't just sort of select the phrase and increase font size. They just select all bold, underline, title case. No, to emphasize it, they would just repeat it, and they would say it multiple times. And in Revelation 22, you feel the cadence getting quicker. 
because he starts saying it three times now. 22 verse 7, look, I'm coming soon. 22 verse 12, look, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me. 22 verse 20, the one who bears witness to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. And it builds and it builds and it builds. Jesus is coming again. I don't know what stories you turn to to sort of awaken this image or this picture of, oh my gosh, the hope of a returning conqueror. Um, I grew up in Malaysia, as you all know, and um, my, my grandmother, my mom's mom, lived in Singapore during the Japanese occupation of Singapore during World War II. And shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese went and, and they invaded um, the Philippines where the Americans were. And then a few months after that, they invaded, it was called Malaya. With Malaysia and Singapore were one region. It was a British colony and they invaded Malaya. They came in from the north. The, 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 the British were totally surprised by it. And there's some famous pictures of uh, the British being made to march out of Singapore in kind of this sort of embarrassed moment. And so there was this somber tone, and, and actually it was a time of great uncertainty and fear. Uh, and I, I remember listening to my, my granny tell stories about living in those days. Meanwhile, over in the Philippines where the Americans were, there had been sort of this hope that maybe the Americans would be the key to the rescue. But President FDR had ordered General MacArthur to leave the Philippines, and he had to take this boat ride from the, one of the northern islands all the way down to one of the southern islands, and it was a 35-hour ride in this small boat trying to avoid enemy fire and mines and all of this stuff. It was a harrowing trip. And he finally made it. They gets on a B-17. They fly him to Australia where he can sort of regroup with the other allied forces there. He arrives and discovers that things are not as robust as he had hoped and as, they, as he stops in one of the train stations, he gives one of the most famous speeches of the war in the Pacific. He says, I made it through, talking about that journey to escape. He says, I made it through, and I shall return. And this was sort of this epic kind of wartime speech, I shall return. And about two and a half years later, here's the picture of it in October 20th, 1944. I'm not sure if you have the picture of it. Maybe you don't have the picture of it. Um, there's a picture of MacArthur walking through wading through the waters as he's walking onto the shores of the Philippines, making good on his promise. And that image for a lot of people in the region brought a lot of hope because it said, okay, well, if he's returned, maybe the war would begin to turn. And in fact, it did. And our family's grateful for the participation, service, and sacrifice of American soldiers in the war. But there's something about those moments that awakens this thing in us that says, yes, come on, return, come back. Star Wars fans are like, it's the return of the Jedi, even if his training is not complete. Tolkien fans are like, it's the return of the king when Aragorn puts away the, the ranger and now becomes the king. But all of these things are pale hints at the grandeur of Christ's return. They're all pale hints of what it's really like. Because you see, first of all, when Jesus left, he was not retreating. He was ascending to the right hand of the Father. He was not abandoning us. We heard the scripture read this evening, I don't leave you as orphans, but the Father will send the Holy Spirit to you. 
He was not abandoning. He was not retreating. He was ascending to the throne of heaven. This is why the book of Revelation has a picture over and over again of a throne. They want us to know. John wants us to know when you feel like the world is falling all around you, don't ever for a second believe that the king has abandoned you. The king is very much still on the throne. And if you would have eyes, you would see. That's what the book of Revelation wants to remind us of. So it's that king that is coming again. It's that king that will come again in glory, that will return. Jesus has come through, and he shall return. The final thing we see in these last chapters of Revelation is that Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Here again is a phrase that we hear at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But he put his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega. First and the last, the beginning and the end. And then we see it again in Revelation 22, verse 13. Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And as we hear these words, we, we understand what that means. And it sounds familiar to us. And maybe you know a smattering of of Greek, enough to know that Alpha is the first letter, that's easy, and Omega is the last letter, so Jesus is A and Jesus is Z, and it all seems to make sense. But actually what Jesus is saying is stronger than that. It's more than a statement about Jesus was sort of there at the beginning, and Jesus will sort of be there when it all ends. It's much stronger than that. In fact, this phrase, Jesus is the beginning and the end, the Greek word for beginning is the word arche, which is more than just starting point. It actually means source. It means fountainhead, origin. Paul says in the book of Colossians, through him all things were made. It's not just that he was the first thing or that he happened to be there in the beginning. That is also true. But it's also that through him all things were made. He is the source of all things. And then this last word, the word end, the Greek word for end there is not terminus or like the ending point, like history just sort of runs off a cliff and we, we ran out of tape and there it is, it's over now. It's actually the word telos, which means goal. It's the culmination point. It's the thing that it has been designed to move toward. In other words, friends, Jesus is the source and the destiny. He is the fountainhead and the finish line. He is the origin and he is the goal. Now, let me tell you why this matters. So often, maybe in a year like 2020, you have conversations with friends who maybe are not you know, in a place where they have a particular belief system or any faith right now, and maybe you'll hear them say, well, you know, life is just random. It's just how crazy, right? I mean, 2020, right? Am I right? <laughs> and there's this just sense that life is just full of randomness, and I don't know. And so you know what? Here's the best advice the world can come up with. The best advice that a world who does not believe in any meta-narrative, the best advice, the best wisdom the world has to offer is to say, live in the moment. Just live in the moment, man. You don't need to know where this relationship is going. You don't need to know what to, you just you know, live in the moment. Listen, there is a kind of truth to that wisdom. It's not 
terrible advice. It sometimes works, like in Frozen 2, where she has to just do the next right thing. Sometimes that's right. When, when you're living through grief and trauma and the world is very small, it, that's, that's wonderful advice. Just, just, take, just stay in the moment and take the next right step. That's perfectly okay. But John wants us to know that, that's, though, that, that though that might be okay advice, the wisdom that the scriptures offer is much more than that. The wisdom that the scriptures offer is not that all we have is the moment. Actually, we have the beginning and the end. We have much more than the moment. We have Christ who is the beginning and the end. Life is not a series of random occurrences and we don't know and we can't sort it out so let's just stay right here. No, 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 no. History has an author. History has a finisher. Life is not chaotic and meaningless. Life has a storyline and it has an author and a finisher of our faith. That's what the scriptures are saying to us. It's also not saying to us that life is cyclical. Maybe in the East and some of my dad's side of the family who were Hindu tend to believe this notion that life just goes in cycles and we just, you know, we do this and we do this and then just rinse and repeat. And maybe we'll come back later as something else and it'll be somewhat better. I'm here to tell you that unmistakably the Christian vision is a linear view something that has a starting and something that has an ending. The Christian vision of the story is not this endless cycle of things that just sort of go over and over again and maybe we'll learn and maybe we'll improve and maybe we'll spiral upward and be better next time. It's just that there's, there's only one who stands as the fountainhead and who stands as the very finish line and goal. And what that means for you is it means your story can be rescued and redeemed. It means your past trauma can be redeemed and your future hope can be secured. You don't stand with the pen in your own hand saying, God, I'm gonna write my own story. We used to think this was such good news that we could be the master of our own destiny. How terrifying it is to think that you have to be the author of your own story. How terrifying it must be to think that you have to be the determiner of your own identity. I will self-determine my identity. Now God works with you, but he alone is the beginning and the end. So how do we live in light of this? If Jesus is going to make all things new, if Jesus is coming again, if Jesus is the beginning and the end, how do we live in light of this future? I just want to say two things to us tonight. The first is to live with anticipation, to live with a sense of anticipation. Now, one meaning of the word anticipation is expectation, a kind of leaning in. Revelation 22, verse 20, the one who bears witness to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. And what's their response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's interesting because this word, amen, the early Christians just decided, let's just use this Hebrew word, amen, because we don't know how to fully translate it. They tried to find a word that said, let it be. And they're like, no, that's not even quite right. And then they said, may it be so. And they said, no, let's just say amen, which just means it is. It's so. It is so. It's not a hopeful. It's not a wishful. It's not even a prayer. Amen is not a prayer. Amen is, it is. And so they, they, they say, I'm coming and they, come Lord Jesus, they say, amen, come Lord Jesus. Or in the, in the language used here, amen, Maranatha. 
Amen and Maranatha. It is, so come. Live with this kind of anticipation. Evan referenced this earlier tonight, but we are, next Sunday begins the season of Advent, season where millions of Christians around the world begin their journey of marking time around the life of Christ. And Advent is that very beginning of it where we begin to anticipate his arrival. I, I confess that we've cheated this year. We put our Christmas tree up yesterday. It's 2020, right? All the rules are out of the window. But there is this sense in which the church stands between two arrivals, his birth and his return. And the church stands between two proclamations, joy to the world, the Lord is come, and Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. And we live between these proclamations, the Lord has come, come Lord Jesus. We live with this anticipation. But the word anticipation also means to begin to do ahead what you think is coming. To begin to start to act now in accordance with what you know is coming. Our son Jonas just turned 11 a couple days ago. And when he was, when he was four, um, I, I coached his, his soccer team. Which if you've ever been around four-year-old, five-year-old soccer, it's not soccer. It's bunch ball. You know, there's a ball and there's a bunch of kids. And the ball goes this way and the bunch goes this way. The ball goes that way and the bunch goes that way. That's pretty much what it is. But one of the toughest things to teach kids to make the, the switch in their mind is to teach them spacing. But they don't want to space. Why? Because the ball's over here. Like, no, go stand over there. I don't want to stand over The ball's over here. I'm like, go, trust me, stand over there. I'll get Johnny to pass it to you. And then you can score. But the ball's over here. But the ball's going to be over there. And as they get older, they begin to understand that the game is about playing not where the ball is, but playing where the ball is going to be. And very often, we would be yelling from the sidelines and we'd say, anticipate, anticipate. And so they'd be like, and they would get better at it and they would get going. And we, we had, you know, a number of undefeated seasons <laughs> because we figured out how to teach these six, seven-year-olds how to do some spacing and spread the field and begin to pass. This is the other sense of the word anticipate. If Jesus is coming soon, and we know what he's going to do, he's going to make all things new. Now, we can't do that. We can't sort out the messes and the brokenness of the world. But we can act in a way that points to it. We can live in a way that witnesses, that bears witness to it. And so we say, what's Jesus going to do when he comes again? He's going to make sure that every tear is wiped away. You know what? I'm going to comfort the brokenhearted right now. I'm going to give my life to caring for others. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I can live in a way that begins to bring comfort and hope and joy to people. I know that when Jesus comes again, that the hungry will be fed. So you know what? I'm going to make sure that I'm giving my, a portion of my resources to make sure that the hungry are taken care of. And you say, you know, when Jesus comes again, injustice will be done away. So I'm going to make sure that I do the things that are within my power to overturn systems and places and structures of injustice because I am going to start doing now what he will do then. I am going to live now as it will be then. I am going to anticipate the coming of King Jesus. That's what it means to live with anticipation. And then the second final thing we'll say. How do we live in light of this future? We need to respond. 
to the Spirit's invitation. The worship team would begin to come as we get ready to come to the Lord's table. I want you to hear this verse from Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say come. The bride we've just heard is a metaphor for the people of God. And so in a very real way, the ending of this book is the Spirit and the church calling us, saying, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes receive life-giving water as a gift. In a sense, our response to this entire book is one word, come. Come. Jesus is coming. Come, Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit says, come. And we say, I'm coming. There's two sides of this. Us beckoning the Lord and us being beckoned by the Holy Spirit and saying, yes, yes, yes. Amen, amen, amen. I'm coming, Lord.